Uh, I'm going to do my best to finish what I started last week, and uh, just by way of very short recap, um, as you can see on the screen, we're in this um, series um, called Supernatural, and uh, And I put a hyphen in it on purpose because I want our natural to become God's super. Evidence of God's super in our natural. That what's normal for him becomes normal for us. And the, um, the key scripture that um, is uh, attached to this is uh, Colossians 3, 1 to 4. Um, and Paul writes, Since then, meaning because you have been raised with Christ, therefore... Set your mind on the realities of heaven. Not if you've been raised, but because you've been raised. And then he says in verse 2, Set your mind on the things above, not on the things on the earth. Where should our priorities be? Paul's really leading us in order that we would understand that we would partner with him when we see what he has on his heart. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God, when Christ who is our life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. There's this, there's this calling out of the church that we are not uh, brought into this abundant life with Jesus to have an ordinary life, but to have an extraordinary life. And the title of today's message, it's kind of part two from what I started last week. If you missed it, you catch it on YouTube or Facebook or on our app. And, and hear it, you can hear that uh, I kind of got a little bit um, excited. I was accused of being on uh, illegal, illicit substances, but that's not true. I wasn't. I did only have one coffee before I preached, and it was all God. But I didn't get finished, so I'm going to finish it today. But I'm delighted that God had that happen, that He orchestrated it, because the revelation layers that I feel came this week that I'm hoping to share with you today uh, on this uh, will be uh, because of the delay. Uh, so extraordinary exploits of everyday believers. And, and last week, um, I, I, I talked to you uh, from 1 Peter chapter 2, and, um, and we'll look at that uh, today because that's our starting point. That's where we're going to launch from. 1 Peter chapter 2 is talking about living stones, and I read it at the beginning, that you come to him, Jesus, who's a living stone, and you also are living stones being built as a spiritual house. And so in context of that, we looked at Peter, the fisherman who wrote that passage. He was one of the disciples of Jesus, and last week we looked at aspects of his life and, and how he would come to the place to, to share that revelation. I also pointed to the life of a guy called Evan Roberts, and I shared with you last week that Evan Roberts was born and raised in a Christian home in the, in the um, late, 18, I think it was 1878, and uh, he prayed along with others that God would, would do a revival. And in Wales, in 1904, there began what's called the Welsh Revival, an outpouring of God doing amazing things in towns and villages right across Wales. But the audacity, the boldness of a young man called Evan Roberts, who one night said, would it be possible for God? to save 100,000 souls in Wales. To see 100,000 people in Wales come to faith in Jesus Christ. And the boldness of his prayer, 
sparked not just his prayer, but the prayer of many sparked a revival, and indeed reports from the 1904 and 1905 show that many, many were saved, over 100,000 people came to faith in Jesus Christ. We talked about Evan Roberts, and, and, and he was a, a, a sort of like a spark, as it were, not the only spark, but a spark, but what I learned from studying him was where his attitude was before God, and I want you to listen to this recount of his um, story, which is not that page, um, a royal priesthood, we're going to come to that, so skip that. Evan Roberts, we're going to listen to how he honored God's word, we're going to listen to he was committed to prayer, and that he was filled with God's Holy Spirit, willing to be used. Just listen to this video, and uh, hear, it's not him speaking by the way, uh, listen to the recount from his journal uh, of an encounter he had in a meeting, uh, we think uh, these guys were The meeting, for us. having been opened, was handed over to the Spirit. Oh Lord, pour out your spirit upon I was conscious that I would have to pray as one, and the others prayed. I put the question to the Spirit. Shall I pray now? Wait a minute, said he. When others prayed, I felt a living force come into my bosom. It held my breath, and my legs shivered, and at every prayer I asked, Shall I now? The living force grew and grew. I was almost bursting. Instantly someone ended his prayer, my bosom boiling. I would have burst if I had not prayed. What boiled me was God commending his love. I fell on my knees with my arms over the seat in front of me, and the tears and perspiration flowed freely. I thought blood was gushing forth. Mrs. Davis came to wipe my face. For about two minutes it was fearful. I cried, bend me, bend me, bend us. Then, oh, and Mrs. Davis said, oh, wonderful grace. Yes, I said, oh, wonderful grace. What bent me was God commending his love and I not seeing anything in it to commend. After I was bent, a wave of peace came over me, and the audience sang, I hear thy welcome voice. And as they sang, I thought of the bending at the judgment day, and I was filled with compassion for those who would be bent on that day, and I wept. How about that for a prayer? Lord, bend me. Lord, bend me. I mean, to be so bold to pray that prayer. Hopefully by the time we finish today, you might be willing to pray that prayer. Evan Roberts, to me, is a great example of what Peter talks about in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, which is the second half of the passage that I attempted to, uh, to explain last week, and I want to come back to that. So 2 Peter 9 says, You are a chosen generation a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You who once not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Paul writes to us, and he's, uh, sorry, Peter writes to us, and he says, you guys, you've got to understand that you are a chosen generation, a royal 
priesthood. So what we have at the beginning of today is this idea that we are a royal priesthood. That, and we want to look at what that means because, you know, if you've been in church uh, a few years, and I know many of you have, that, that you might think, oh, I know what that means. But I want to take it another layer for you today. I want you to understand that the, the phrase a royal priesthood, in some references, say it came out of a, a passage in, in Exodus 19 verse 5 and 6, and you can, you can see that reference on the screen for you. And it's God himself speaking through Moses. He says, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words, Moses, that you should speak to the people of Israel. God himself says, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood. And so this is what I want to unpack this morning. The phrase that I want you to think about as we do this is that we are called as Christians to administer the kingdom of God. And I want to show you what that looks like. Because it was a phrase that God gave me a couple of weeks ago, and I was like, okay, yeah, I think I know what that means. Um, but there's layers and then there's layers. So today, the starting point for you is, okay, what, what would it be like to administer the kingdom of God? How am I going to be a royal priesthood? So how as a priest, how do I access this revelation from heaven? And as a king, as a royal priesthood, as a king and priest, as Exodus uh, shows us, how do I administer that and establish that in the world today? And I want us to look at that. I want us to understand that that's truly what God is calling us into. Um, and I want to leave this up for you because I want you to understand that even Roberts, uh, yep, he's one of the men in history. And look, I studied revival last year uh, just for fun because it's what I do, I'm a widow. And there's many, 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 many stories of people in, in history that have sparked revival in their family or in their community or across a nation. So Evan Roberts is just one I chose. Peter the disciple we recognize is one who last week birthed essentially the, re the revelation from heaven that all Gentiles were welcome into God's presence and listen to the message for that. And then of course you can upload your photo and understand that you're also part of this because God's called all of us to be a revivalist. God's called all of us, you and me, to be a revivalist. So let's unpack scripture. One of the things that I discovered as I was um, journeying through this today is that Jesus himself also had some words for you. Uh, but not while he was first on earth, but he spoke from heaven in a revelation to John. The revelation of Jesus Christ is the last book in the Bible. And in this, John has this um, very interesting uh, encounter with Jesus. But listen to Jesus. Um, John writes this. Uh, these aren't the words of Jesus. This is what um, um, John says as a result of this. Grace to you and peace from him, Jesus, who is and was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits are before his throne. That's the, one, the spirit of God that looks across the earth. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth to 
Him who loved us and washed us from our sins, Jesus makes us set apart. And He has made us kings and priests to His God and Father. To Him be the glory and dominion forevermore. So here we have this idea that we are kings and priests before God. So this is, this is the revelation that we have to have. So what I'm using is the language out of Scripture, because you might not trust my ideas, but hopefully you trust the Scripture. And you can understand that, that, that the revelation that Jesus gave to John says, Jesus has called you out in order that you be kings and priests before God. And so um, just two more references, if you wanted to double-check this, is, is um, Ephesians, Ephesians chapter uh, 1, verse 3. Um, Paul says, Every spiritual blessing has been given unto you by God through Jesus Christ. It's, it's, it's in the Scriptures. You can have a look at it. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be God, the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So, so the fact that, that um, we would say we're kings and priests before God, you might say, well, who are we? You know, we're, we're, the suffering, we're the suffering church. We're the ones that need to be persecuted. We're the ones that need to go out there. And that's all part of the story. There's two sides to the coin. But let's not miss the revelation for today to become supernatural, that we're kings and priests before God. And if you look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, God, rich in mercy, loved you, verse 4. We were dead, but he made us alive. That's verse 5. But Ephesians 2, verse 6 is, and then he said, and he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6 says... We're raised up spiritually with Christ. Therefore, if we're going to set our sights on the realities of heaven, it shouldn't be that hard because we're spiritually already in that place. Because you're like, oh, well, you know, where do you get the revelation to become a revivalist? Well, if you're raised with Christ in the heavenly places, then that's how you access it. So I went on this journey, and I was like, oh, Lord, how am I going to, how am I going to kind of follow this. And he started to reveal something to me about the role that Jesus has for us. And, and then I started pulling the thread. And that's kind of where we're going to go. And I, I think what I want to do is I want to, I want to end up back here with kind of like an like a exclamation mark. And we're going to go on a journey. Um, but what I also want to do is, is, is factor it around something central that I'm going to explain to you in the middle, so hopefully you can see that, but I want you to understand that Jesus is revealing something for you to embrace. And, and where I found this in the beginning was this, um, this idea that, well, where would, where would we find this idea that Jesus has set us apart? And, and it's most easily explained in the book of Hebrews. Because Jesus, we have to understand that um, everything rises and falls on Jesus Christ. And so I just want to make that anchor point right now that Christ is our mediator. And I'll show you that in Scripture. So let's turn, if you're writing notes, uh, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 
well, from verse 12, it says, um, guys, you can't spread the, spill the, the blood of animals uh, for what we've, what we've got to achieve. So that didn't work. So how much more shall the blood of Christ, through the eternal spirit, cleanse your conscience from dead works? So Jesus is the perfect sacrifice that makes all this possible. And I want to understand, it's not about the wisdom of man, it's not about what one guy said when he read the Bible, it's actually all anchored on what Jesus Christ has done for us. So verse 15, and for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant by means of death, his death, for the redemption of a transgressions under the first covenant, that those are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. So that's uh, Hebrews 9, verse 15. So it all anchors off Jesus Christ. He is the, he's the mediator on our behalf who makes the way possible. And if you, if you look at um, the passages of Hebrews from 5 through 10, uh, you'll, you'll see that really well explained. And also, um, we need to understand that Christ is our victorious ruler. This is a subnote for my um, process, but he's a victorious ruler. And Ephesians uh, 1, verse uh, 20 to 22, I'm writing this up because you might want to take a photo of it later. Um, he says, look, Christ has been established above all things, and all things will bow before him. So not only is Christ our mediator that makes a way for this to be possible, but he rules victoriously. Ultimately, nothing without him. Nothing without him. So we've got to put that into our picture of what does it look like if we're going to, we are going to be the, the punch mark here, the, the exclamation, the supernatural people of God who are a royal priesthood, um, then it hinges around the theme for my series, which is this, and there are just three thoughts, because if, if this is us here, and this is Christ, our foundation and our mediator, then what's in the box? And, and what, I, what I was um, looking at as I was studying this um, for the series was that we are being made into a new tabernacle. A new tabernacle. And, and a tabernacle is a, a biblical word for a, a place of worship, a place of gathering, a place where God is. But the, but the thing we've got to get, the revelation I've been going on about all year, is it's not about a building. It's not about a structure that has a roof. Nothing with walls. The new tabernacle is, in fact, us fitting together because of what Jesus has done for us. So if you have a look at Hebrews 9.11... Christ came as the high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That means not of this creation. So it's not a substance that has curtains or a, a table necessarily. It's people. It's people. It's you. It's me. It's us being fitted together. And, and next month, I want to um, talk about how we fit together. In the, in the next series. I, I, central to this is my message from last week is we are living stones. And as elders, we've actually been unpacking this a little bit and challenging ourselves, and Richard's been doing some research on what does this actually mean for us as a church to be, as Peter wrote uh, in 1 Peter 2, 
What does it mean if we're going to be living stones? How do we come together? We're, we're fitted together with Christ and each other to become this, this dwelling place. And, you know, we say about Zion, the reason we named the church Zion four years ago is that God's dwelling place is our dwelling place. That's what the Bible shows us when you study the name of Zion. Zion is the dwelling place of God, but we're, we're called to dwell and cohabit with Him. So we are fitted together uh, as living stones with Christ. In fact, we should probably change this picture. You tell I'm getting mad now. Is we could change it into like look like a house with a roof on it. The tabernacle, not so much that it's a building, but that you understand it's a dwelling place a place that we come together to be not just with Christ, in Christ, but with each other and, in, and connected in each other. Christ is our example. We're living stones. But, but more than that, if we just finish the picture, it's, it's we are living stones as God's dwelling place. And you might say, well, doesn't God live in heaven? Well, let's see what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. Therefore, Paul says, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. You're not outside. So you're not, not outside the, the dwelling place. But fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having built, being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, which is why this is important, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So what Paul's saying is, guys, the whole point of Jesus Christ being the cornerstone, the anchor of this revelation, is that you would come together, but not to be individual stones that are just kicked into a pile, that you'd be locked together, built together. You'd become the, the dwelling place of God, that God's presence would be amongst us as we live together and interact, interact with one another. Ephesians, what was that? 2, 19 to 22. That, that we would understand being a royal priesthood comes with a responsibility to each other that we're locked together by revelation and who He is and who we are. It's not just good enough for you to say, oh, well, I know who Jesus is. He's the Son of God. Now, you don't understand who you are. Because without a revelation of who you are, you can't quite see yourself fitting in this. So the church has got to come to the revelation that we're a royal priesthood. We're kings and priests before God, only anchored by the fact that Christ went before us. He's the, he's the forerunner. I think that's the next passage I've got. Is Christ is our example. He's our forerunner. And I'll show you the scripture. He's the firstborn. But what, what happened is he went to do what would make a way for us. Jesus didn't do it for himself. He did the sacrificial life. He did the whole death and the, the defeating the enemy so that he could be a forerunner for us. That what he accomplished, we could also accomplish. Let's look at that in the scriptures. It's in Hebrews chapter 6. You can try and tell I read the Bible backwards this week. Went from Hebrews 10 to Hebrews 9 to Hebrews 8. And uh, in Hebrews 6, just to reference it, right at the end of the chapter, it says, or the verse before it, the hope we have is an anchor for our soul. 
both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. That means Jesus made a way for us to go into that place of God's presence, where the forerunner has entered for us. Even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So that's Hebrews 6, verse 20. This is the key word here, Hebrews 6, verse 20. Christ is our forerunner. He made a way for us to enter into the presence of God, the heavenly place. Since therefore you have been raised with Christ, seated with him in heavenly places, set your mind on the realities of heaven. That's what the scripture's saying, because Christ made a way for us to go in there. He is established forever, the writer of Hebrews says, as a, as a high priest above all in the order of Melchizedek, which is an interesting thought. A little sub-scripture that I have here is um, Hebrews 7 verse 15. Because I'm reading this, and I, and I know the story of Melchizedek, and I'm going to tell it to you. But I'm reading it going, well, what's the relevance for us? Why, why would God have me pull on this thread? Why would he remind me at 7 in the morning that, I was supposed, that I'd committed to fasting? And then I go on the journey with him pulling the thread all morning, and I end up here where it says in, in verse 15, far more evident, in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest, meaning Jesus who became not according to the law or a fleshly commandment, but according, this is the key thing, according to the power of an endless life. Guys, we need to understand this, this bit here. Christ, our example, is the power, this might have relevance for you if you believe in miracles, of an endless, oops, an endless life. That's the power we call on in our royal priesthood because of Jesus, he's done it before us. We have the power of an endless life. It goes on to say that the testifying about Jesus was that he would be a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. He's, he's, he's the God that has come in and then, God's, then, the, then the writer, we, don't know who, we actually don't know who wrote this. It's not proven. But the writer says, look, um, the priests of old became priests because of lineage, essentially. But he, meaning Jesus, with an oath said to him, meaning God spoke about Jesus. Verse 21, the Lord has sworn. That means the word there, the, the Yahweh, the great God, the I am, the one that is all-encompassing, has actually sworn an oath to Jesus, saying, you will forever. I will not relent, and you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So what we see here is in Hebrews... Sorry, I'm just going to write this down, because otherwise I'll lose myself. Hebrews 7, verse 15 to 20, we get this idea that, that God himself swore, I will not relent, you, Jesus, will be a priest forever. And we know that he's our forerunner, he's a mediator for us, that what we have access to is only because of him, but it's what he's calling us into. We've got to understand, well, if this is the life that Christ had, and he's calling us into it, well, how does it fit for us in our daily lives. How does it affect you when you go to work tomorrow morning in the workshop or in the school or in the office? 
How does it affect you when you're uh, interacting with your um, peers or your family? You know, like when you have a family dinner and it's a little bit chaotic, and you're like, how, well, how does that affect that? I had to go to a board meeting yesterday in Topor, and it was six hours in a room with 20 people, most of whom didn't trust each other. In fact, some of them hated each other. There was chaos and opposition in the room, and there was no resolution. After six hours. Happy Saturday. What do I bring to that situation? Why am I there? Well, because Christ has called me to be a royal priesthood. He's an example, the mediator of something that I get to carry because he's called me a royal priest. I have to live my life differently. I have to interact differently. What does that look like? And I studied this, and so I got to this bit, and I was like, well, Christ is called to a high priestly mantle. God himself said, I'm swearing it by my name, and I'm not going to relent. Jesus, you will be the priest forever in Melchizedek. And the writer of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 110. So we should write that down. Oops, 1 to 4. Psalm 110. He's quoting Psalm 110. So, like, I'm pulling the thread. And lucky for you, you get to follow the journey, hopefully. This is why I decided to draw it. Because if I was explaining this without pictures, I know that if I was sitting there, I'd be lost. So Psalm 110, it's a prophetic psalm, and it's written by a guy who you've probably heard of in the Bible. His name's David. And David was prophetic in the way he wrote these psalms and these songs, and many of them are what we call messianic psalms, meaning they're prophetically pointing to the Son of God who would be the Savior of the world, meaning Jesus. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power and the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning. You have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And when you compare that scripture to the passage in Hebrews that I was explaining before, all these other verses from Hebrews 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9, is it's what we call, I'm going to have to get down here to write this, it's what we call the restoration of oops, a perfect, oh, what did I put? A perfect priesthood. Because what we learn by reading Hebrews is the, the shedding of the blood of the goats and the, and the high priest going in once a year to atone for the sin of the people. It wasn't cutting it. God said, look, I, I just did that to show you that you weren't holy. And without me, you couldn't be holy. But you had to do it because it was the only way I had until one would come as a mediator, an example, and a forerunner. And so the prophetic word is here is that Christ would come in the restoration of a perfect priesthood. But guys, don't miss the connection. This is what Jesus Christ is our example for, but what he's called us into. Not just the guy at the front in the black cloak with the dog collar that's white, hopefully. Because what my point was to you last week is that we're called into the priesthood of all believers. Everyone, 
that would confess Jesus as their Lord and Savior, whether it was yesterday or 25 years ago or 65 years ago. The priesthood of all believers. Are you okay? Most of you okay? No one's... Just, just, just not, nudge the person next to you. Make sure they haven't gone to sleep because um, that was my introduction. That was just me setting you up for the good part. Because as I did last week, when I showed you 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 and 5 and 9 and 10 that I never got to, I said to you, well, who wrote this and who, should we get to know the guy who wrote it so we can understand where he's coming from? In the same way, I got to this point and God said to me, well, who wrote that? And it was, I just told you before, it was David. So, so I got along the, the thing here, and I'm like, well, let's just write this on the piece of paper that I've got. So David, if you study David, he was um, called by God as a young man. God says, I'm, I'm, lo- I'm looking for a man who has a heart after mine. Yeah? It wasn't about physical appearance, because all his older brothers, seven older brothers, got rejected. And the prophet says to dad, well, what, have you got anyone else? Cause, and he's like, oh, the runt of the litter, he's out there. He's actually probably illegitimate, to be honest, which is why he wasn't presented. Another story for another day. But God says, no, no, David will be my righteous king, which I found a little bit of a, a lull moment, a chuckle moment, because if you know the story of David, he wasn't perfect. But that's different, eh? Because in church, we should expect everyone to be perfect. Especially the pastor. So I'm looking at David. And, and I understand, if you want to know, honestly, I'm going to say this, I'm not going to prove it to you, but he's a type of Christ. Which I found interesting. He's a forerunner, he's an example. He's of the tribe of Judah. which is really weird when I say he was a righteous king because the priests came out of the tribe of who? Levi. But God chose David to come from Judah to be a type of Christ to prophesy the restoration of a perfect priesthood that would point to Jesus Christ, that would be our example. And I'm scratching my head as I pull the thread. The key thing you have to, have to think about here is if you go like this, um, this was important, so I'll write it down. It was revealed to him, which means David was called, actually, also, he was called a prophet. Now, that's going to bend your mind if you're a Hebrew raised in the tradition of the Torah which is where this passage of Hebrews 9, 10, 11 I got, or 5 to 10 got around this, that this whole thing points to a man who was a prophet. Revealed the things of heaven to establish things on earth. I go back to my explanation of 1 Peter 2, verse 9 and 10, the slide that I put up for you. If we're going to administer heaven on earth, we need the revelation of heaven as a priest, and the administering of, the establishment of heaven as kings. That's what this means. 
a royal priesthood means a, a kingdom of priests, priests who establish God's kingdom. What is God's kingdom? Kingdom is defined as the domain of the king. So as priests, we have to establish God's dominion in our midst. You're not sure? You want evidence? Okay, you asked for it. Before we do this, though, we need to understand, because I want to connect David to Jesus. What I love about um, uh, David is he's a mediator for the people. And he was also a victorious ruler. Oops. This will start happening. This is interesting. So he's, he's interceding for God's people, and he's winning battles and killing people. God said, go and take the territory. So he goes and he takes the territory. That's called being victorious. Pushing back the enemy for God's people. If you want to have a little bit of a study around David... There was this really cool thing that I saw in Scripture. Look, I'm going to get artistic now. David is the king, or the crown of Judah. But he also, in 2 Samuel 6 verse 14, wore the linen ephod, which was the priestly garment, ordained with rocks, Remember when he dances before the people and his wife goes, oh, you egg, you shamed yourself. Remember that story? Yeah. Some of you? Yeah. Well, he's bringing the presence of God and the people and he's dancing because he's just full of joy of the Lord, but he wore the priestly garment, the crown on his head, a kingdom of priests seen in David. That's how we're supposed to live. We're supposed to wear the priestly ephod, not literally. We're supposed to be priests before God, ministering before God and before people, carrying His presence as priests, as mediators of God's presence before the people. But we're to establish as kings with the crown the rule and the domain of God in our environment. Just to, just to um, take something else from here, I got a little sidetracked, which I'm not going to spend long on it, but I just got sidetracked in Psalm 110. Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Now, God is speaking to Jesus. That's what that is. Let's not miss it. But Christ is our example. And what I propose to you is Christ is our example in order that we would embrace the truth that God would say to you, come and sit with Christ at my right hand. Oh, that's right, that was already in Scripture. Ephesians 2 verse 6, that I would make your enemies your footstool. We might see it in Scripture if we look hard enough.
The Lord shall send, verse 2 of Psalm 110, I'm still distracted. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. And I like that because, you know, like we wear a t-shirt that says Zion on it. So I take note of it. It's just a dumb thing I do. The Lord shall send your rod of your strength. Another word that would be used there is the Lord would say, extend the scepter of your rule and I will do things before you. So, not only do we have um, enemies, and I'll put our there, just in case you want to be reminded, our footstool from Psalm 110, but rule, scepter, power. And the example that I have for you from that is Exodus 14. Moses, the deliverer of the season, takes God's people out of bondage of Egypt and they get to the Red Sea. And I love the way God talks to Moses because I can so relate to it. Because the Red Sea is in front of them. And the thunder of the army of Egypt is behind them. And Moses, being a typical leader, is whining. And God says to him, what are you whining about? Raise up your rod before you. And what happened? That's where this comes from. The scepter is, so this is Psalm 110, verse 1 and 2. This is Exodus uh, 14, verse 6, for those of you who want notes. God is saying to us, as a royal priesthood, with Jesus as our example, we're restoration of a perfect priesthood, we've got to wear the crown and the ephod at the same time, which is hard to dance, but David did it, so you can. But basically, he says we want to make our enemies our footstool, and we want to rule with the power of God, as Moses did, and see this Red Sea part before us. Symbolic of your miracle at your command. Well, I thought it was a good point. So David is writing Psalm 110, and he's talking about the restoration of a perfect priesthood, which we're called into. And he says, prophetically, you, Jesus, will be forever in the order of Melchizedek. Well, to understand who Melchizedek is, firstly, let me, just, let me explain something by reading to you Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1 and 2. And then we'll go to the story of Melchizedek because it's the punchline. Oh, because <laughs> it's almost lunchtime. Hebrews 7 verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and he blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of the first. Melchizedek translated as king of righteousness and then Salem meaning king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, which means he's eternal, 
made in the likeness of the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Melchizedek, an eternal man, king of what? King of righteousness, king of peace. Some would say Jesus. But I wanted you to hear that because we need to go and find Melchizedek. And we find Melchizedek in, in Genesis chapter 14. And I promise you this is the punchline. Hang in with me. Lunch is on its way. Well, coffee soon. Because I, I want you to see where you fit in this picture, which is here. And to do that, I have to give you this piece of the puzzle. Genesis 14, really, really, really quick version of the story. Uh, Abraham uh, hasn't yet got his promise, hasn't, hasn't received the promise. He knows that God wants to give him something, and it's in the next chapter. And he's living in a foreign land, and, and the, 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 the rulers of the east, King, oh, look, I'm, I practiced this all week, so I have to read it out. King Chudolaoma from Babylon. He was oppressing them, and him and his mates were, were squeezing the life out of the region, the Amorite kings uh, and, the, and the kings of the region. And they had to pay a tribute every year so they wouldn't get killed. And for 12 years, they were under bondage of the king and his friends. Abraham lives in that environment, under the tree. And on the 13th year, they said, nah, stuff you, we're not paying it anymore. So in the 14th year, the king and his mates came to kill them, where Abraham's living. And what happens is they came and they run in and they, they're mighty and they, they take the city of Sodom. And, and we read in the story that Abraham's nephew, they call him his brother, nephew was taken away as a captive. But someone escapes and tells Abraham about it. And Abraham goes, well, I'm not having that, not on my watch. Because I serve the God of all. So he takes his band of merry men, 384 slaves that were born in his house, and he says, let's go and deal to these guys. He rides after a conquering army, and he takes back what was stolen. So Abraham conquers, which is odd, considering his army numbered under 400. And those that he fought against numbered in the millions. So this is Genesis 14. I really encourage you to read the story. Abraham conquers. But I want you to see this. He, he conquers, Abraham conquers the king on behalf of the king of Sodom. Because I'm reading the story, and Melchizedek turns up. So, so there's two things that happen here, which you've got to understand, is we've got two, two, two parts of the story here. But the king of Sodom visits, which I found really odd in the story, and Melchizedek. We won't spell that today. <laughs> I'm running out of steam. I'm like, Lord, why did the king of Sodom turn up? 
Like, that's weird. I've never, I haven't looked at that before. Like, Melchizedek I know about, right? Well, well, Abraham conquered the enemy of the king of Sodom and took back the plunder and said, I'm keeping my son, but you can have the rest because I don't want you to say you made me wealthy. And here's my point. Abraham conquers. He's a mediator for God's people, and he's victorious. Or didn't we just read that somewhere else? Oh, like here? Oh, and here? And I'm like, I'm reading this, and I'm like, what's going on, God? And, And why is, so Melchizedek turns up, and I love this, because Melchizedek, it says in Hebrews, is without beginning and without end. He's a priest forever, the king of righteousness, king of Salem, which becomes Jerusalem later, significant location. And I'm like, what's going on, God? Because what, what I want you to understand is, where do you fit in? And I'm, I'm like, what's going on, God? Because like, I believe God's called us to be a kingdom of priests, as per Scripture. But that's only a phrase unless we actually live like it, a revivalist. And I felt like God said there are three parties in the story in Genesis 14. There's Abraham, there's the king of Sodom, and there's Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a man without beginning and end, a type of Christ, or in fact, Jesus himself. Don't miss the point in the story where the king, Melchizedek, brings the crackers and the juice for a covenant meal. No, I read that somewhere else. What do we do when we take a cracker, which represents, come on, the cracker represents the body of Jesus that was broken for us, and his, the juice represents the blood of Jesus, which represents his, his sacrificial blood that sets us free from sin. Well, King Melchizedek brings crackers and juice and says, let's have a covenant meal. And Abraham gave him a tithe. Why? Because he wants in on the partnership. So there's Melchizedek, which is like Jesus. Oops. And then there's Abraham. And then there's the king of Sodom. And I'm like, okay, Lord, well, what on earth did king of Sodom turn up to this party? Because he brought nothing. And the Lord said to me, I want to get this right. The king of Sodom is the people in your town in need because they're under bondage. Oppressed, in this case, for 12 years. But come with me for a walk and we'll find people who have been oppressed for 12 generations. Under bondage. Screaming for help for someone to be a mediator and a victorious ruler or a mediator and a victorious ruler, or a mediator and a victorious ruler, 
They're under bondage. Our town needs you and Jesus. I'm like, well, who's this dude that I took all week to pronounce? Chodoleoma, the king of the east, the, the oppressor. Because there was four of them. Four, I won't get all their names right. They bandied together to keep people in bondage. And the Lord said, well, that's just the demonic culture of our world that seeks to keep people in bondage. And I need a royal priesthood, says God, which is you, to set the people free in partnership with Jesus. That's what a royal priesthood looks like. Pushing back darkness, setting people free from oppression and bondage in order that they would walk in freedom with you. That's what our town needs. That's why you might consider responding to the invitation in Scripture that you are a royal priesthood. Because it's optional. You don't have to live like that if you don't want to. But our town needs you. Our nation needs you to embrace your calling. There are people... This is why local missions are so important to me because there are, there are organisations in our town that are screaming for help and they're looking for Abraham to turn up and say, hey, I'll help. That's why we're in, six, we're in 19 schools next term offering counselling to primary school children. Why? Because it's, it's a crazy problem. God, when I talked on the phone the other day, it's bigger than we can help. But when we turn up and say, hey, we want to be part of a solution, they go, oh, thank, thank goodness someone's helping. Why don't you stand? I, I'm way over time and I, uh, I, I recognise that, but I don't apologise for it. Um, and, and to finish, um, there's a song that I've asked the guys to play, which is literally a prayer that you get to choose that you might sing, and that is, I'm available. I'm available. And you choose how you respond to that in here. But the, the cry of my heart is that we would become a church full of revivalists, understanding that there are a royal priesthood, a new tabernacle, living stones, God's dwelling place for the sake of those in bondage. God has set us apart, not for a glory club, but to set the people free, to be a mediator and be victorious rulers in our town.